on the record flips to the B-side. Good morning. I'm Lissa Mudd, and you're listening to B-Side. Today's show is all about memory, what sparks it, how it works, and what happens when it breaks down. In the next half hour, we'll take you on a bittersweet trip to the happiest place on Earth, show you some mysterious writing on a wall, and relive a high school friendship through the wonders of hi-fi audio tape. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-Side. Even those of us who constantly forget where we've left our keys can easily remember a poem or a weird fact memorized years ago. When I was in third grade, I fell in love with an illustrated book of Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky. I memorized it on a long car ride and probably drove my family crazy, repeating each line over and over. I still remember it, and sometimes it gets stuck in my head, particularly the first stanza. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the groves, and the moam wraths out grabe. This is the kind of stuff most of us have squirreled away at the back of our brains, along with more useful things, like our social security numbers and our friends' birthdays. The B-Side crew has been asking people to dive deep into their memories and share some of these tidbits. Throughout today's show, you'll hear what we uncovered. Thanks to Mr. Keating of my freshman biology class at Lane Tech High School in Chicago, uh, I remember how to uh, remember the whole scientific order classification system by, uh, by kings play cards on flat green steps, which is kingdom, phylum, class, order, group, family, and spe- uh, species. I'm a vet student, and we have to memorize the cranial nerves in the dog and their location in the brain. So to memorize this, we all come up with our own little mnemonic. This was mine. Old Opus ought to try and find very good vets around here. And that stands for olfactory, optic, oculomotor, trochlear, trigeminal, abducens, facial, vestibulococular, glossopharyngeal, vagus, accessory, and hypoglossal nerve. So the quadratic formula is used to solve quadratic equations. I think I learned it sometime around 8th grade or so. And it's uh, negative B plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac divided by 2a. We all know we have memories, but how much do we really understand about the way they work? To find out what memories are made of, besides Mia Lobel talked with neuroscientists who are trying to unravel the tricky science of memory. I took Psych 101 in college, and so I have a vague sense of long- and short-term memory, and that one helps me remember, say, that time I played the troll in the Three Billy Goats Gruff in preschool, and the other reminds me what I had for lunch yesterday. But how it all fits together is a complete mystery to me. Turns out it's a mystery to most of the science world as well. Susan Landau is a Ph.D. student in UC Berkeley's neuroscience program, and she's been studying cognitive neuroscience for the past three years. What researchers like Susan do know about memory, they learned from a non-invasive technology called Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or Functional MRI. Susan took me to the Henry H. Wheeler Jr. Brain Imaging Center, a portable classroom-turned-science lab on the UC Berkeley campus, to show me how it works. 
We have a four Tesla Varian magnet inside, which we use for our research on brain imaging. The magnet is so powerful that if you walked into the scanner room holding a hammer and let it go, it would go flying into the magnet at 20 to 30 miles per hour. Susan showed me inside. To the right is a wall of computer equipment, flashing grids, humming generators, and an LCD projector. To the left is the scanner. Right now, Sasha Gibbs, who's a graduate student in our lab, is putting her research assistant into the scanner. The research assistant, Laurel, is lying on her back on a table that is slowly receding into a large cylindrical tube. Her arms are by her side, and her head is held still with padding. Sasha sits at a computer console on the other side of the trailer. Laurel, drop your chin just a teeny bit for me. Perfect. Okay, Laurel, this will be a two-minute scan. You ready? Yeah. So right now she's getting a structural image of Laurel's brain, and then we superimpose on top of that image the the functional activity. The magnet literally enables the researchers to look inside the subject's active brain without surgery. Susan explains. The machine allows us to detect blood flow to different parts of the brain. And there's research that shows that when blood flows to different parts of the brain, those parts of the brain are more active. So the person in the scanner is shown strings of shapes, words, or numbers on a screen and is asked to remember them a few seconds later. Researchers can then look at and compare the brain activity at different stages in the process of recalling. Now you can see the pictures of her brain coming up on the screen. You have a beautiful brain! Researchers gather this kind of data from numerous subjects and then compare the results. This is how they come up with theories of how memory works, or doesn't work as the case may be. Once a year in San Francisco, the nation's top neuroscientists get together to talk about what they've learned from these scans. Jason Mitchell from Harvard University is quick to admit that no one really knows the truth about the science of memory. We have very naive notions about how our memory works, and that's nothing at all like you know, how it actually works. Despite years of research on the subject, most of the scientists I met would rather say what they don't know about memory. But when I asked Lokendra Shastri from the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley to tell me what memory was to him, this is what he told me. Our memories are linked to the past. In some sense, it defines, you know, who we are, how we see the world, how do we interpret the world, what do we consider important. And in that sense, it does define our very being. So if you don't have any memory, we will have no sense of, uh, of history, no sense of the past, no sense of the present. It will be a very interesting existence, I guess. That is a concept I do understand. Even if they're not sure how or why we remember... What all of the researchers I spoke to agree on is that memory is fascinating. The way the brain is able to take all the images and smells and experiences that we encounter every day and turn them into little capsules of thought that we can recollect, wonder about, and share. For B-Side, I'm Mia Lobel. It's the Gettysburg Address, and I don't know when I learned it exactly, but maybe... Fourth grade, fifth grade, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth onto this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, and more. Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho. There's like only 20 more to go. <laughs> when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them with another and to declare among the powers of the earth 
the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. What we remember can be real or imaginary, or somewhere in between. For besides Amy Scott, reality and imagination come together in a certain place. Buckle your seatbelt and keep your arms and legs in the car as Amy takes us to a spot in Southern California that works hard to make sure visitors have a memorable stay. It was late October last year. My mom was coming to Los Angeles, where I live, for a business trip, and given everything that had happened a month earlier, I decided I had to meet her in the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. Mom, are you paying for this? Yes, I am paying for it. Good. Welcome aboard the Disneyland monorail. And it was amazing. The minute I walked into that place, I felt so safe. Strangely, in this new age of extreme caution, no one searched our bags. No one even glanced at my microphone. The candy-colored huts and the swirl of children and chocolate frozen bananas and painted-on smiles lulled me back to a sense of security I hadn't felt since, well, before September. But for me, Disneyland wasn't always the safest place on Earth. <laughs> I think it was a lot more fun for the adults than it was for the kids. Why's that? I guess I'm thinking about the time that you were so scared on Pirates of the Caribbean and we were having so much fun. Oh yeah, the Pirates of the Caribbean. How could I forget? It was my first ride ever at Disneyland. I remembered the wet smell of wood, a creaky boat ride, and lots of scary, drunken pirates. What were my parents thinking? Well, we just thought Pirates of the Caribbean was one of the most fun, exciting, what do you call them, <laughs> events, right. rides. But you were just a little child, three or four years old, and you were absolutely terrified, and you didn't want to go on any more rides, no matter what. <laughs> Not even it's a small world? Not even it's a small world. Pretty sad. Anyway, Mom and I decided to wander over to Adventureland to check out the scary pirate ride, now that we're both grown-ups and all. Notice, Mom, there aren't any kids on this ride. Okay, I can see why I would be getting scared right about now. There's a talking skull on the wall, and you're about to go into a cave and you can't see anything. And Mark Wells' words, matey. Dead men tell no tales. The thing about theme parks is they're designed to scare you, but in a controlled setting. The ride jerks and then drops you into a black cave, some scary music plays, you get jerked a couple more times, and it's over. But you can't tell that to a four-year-old who's blindly followed her parents onto this ride and can't really distinguish between what's real and what's a plastic mannequin with an eye patch and a fake parrot taped to its head. At this point, was I screaming? <laughs> I think so. Screaming and wanting to get out. <laughs> a friend once tried to convince me that it's against Disney rules for anyone to die at Disneyland. Like they put you on life support until they get you out of the park, at which point you're free to do as you like, I guess. Pure urban legend, of course, but that's the kind of mythology that surrounds Disney culture. Cast members must never be seen out of character. The staff have their own little private world of underground tunnels and passageways, all designed to maintain this illusion of perfection, magic, and safety. Of course, people have died at Disneyland. Nine people since the park opened in 1955. 
Someone even got hurt on the Pirates of the Caribbean last year. But it wasn't the idea of getting hurt that scared me so much as a four-year-old. I guess it was that my very own parents would lead me into a dark, violent place and that that was supposed to be fun. Now I was back here again, but this time taking refuge on the pirate ride. And it had turned out that the real world could be even scarier. Well, we did it, Mom. Is it as impressive as you remember? No. A lot has changed in terms of our sensibilities, I guess. You mean we've changed? The ride hasn't changed, but we have? No, definitely. We emerged from the cave into the fading daylight. Mom wanted to see the electric parade, so we joined the throngs of children and their weary parents along Main Street, lined with false pink and yellow storefronts. At one point, it began to snow. October in Southern California, and fat little flakes dropped down from the sky. The Canty family, visiting from Northern California, stood nearby, taking it in with their son, Max. Make you feel cold seeing the snow? Yes. <laughs> but it's not still, it's bubbles. <laughs> it's what? Bubbles. Oh. Bubbles. So much for suspension of disbelief. Max would have no trouble with the scary mannequins. Do you think you'll take them on Pirates of the Caribbean? I don't know, Max. Do you want to go on a pirate ship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. I asked Max's mom if they'd come here to escape what was really happening in the world. That certainly helps. You know, it's definitely magical. <laughs> As for me and Mom, we went off to Tomorrowland to tackle a grown-up scary ride, the roller coaster Space Mountain. Frankly, though, it just made me kind of carsick. And the blind turns and whiplash were nothing compared to what waited for us outside of Disney's protective gates. The next day, it was back to the real ride. For B-Side, I'm Amy Scott in Los Angeles. You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stick around as On the Record flips to the B-side. If memories make us who we are, then what happens when people start to forget? Alzheimer's disease is reaching epidemic proportions. And it doesn't just affect the people who have it. At Alzheimer's Services of the East Bay's Adult Daycare Center in Berkeley, staff caregivers help people with dementia as their ability to remember fades. Everyone here wears name tags all the time because most clients have lost their short-term memories. The staff helps them with everything from art projects and exercise to eating and trying to keep their remaining memories alive. Cynthia Davis has been working with seniors for seven years, and she says even though she's not related to the people she cares for, it can be painful to watch them slip away. We all will forget where our keys are. We will all forget someone's name. We will maybe look at something and go, oh my gosh, I can't even remember the name of this. Remind me what that is. Then it comes. But when it stops coming, when you stop remembering someone's name, forgetting where your keys are all the time, getting lost coming home, then... Something's, something's wrong. Typically, folks will come to us in middle to late stage of some type of dementia, and as they progress, they're going to uh, not remember how to put clothes on. They're not going to remember and know how to go to the bathroom, take a shower. Everyone that comes to us, we experience loss 
like their families do, because we see them decline on a regular basis. They may not need help transferring to their chair from their walker. Now they do. Now they're from their walker to their wheelchair. Now they need full assistance in the bathroom. Uh, They didn't need help or assistance eating. Now they do. They've forgotten how to swallow. We get to know them. We get touched by their lives and who they are. And then they change over a period of time. It could be within months. It could be within a few years. And then we don't see them again. Okay, so this is uh, the first stanza of Longfellow's Hiawatha from Mrs. Lucas's third grade class. By the shores of Gichigumi, by the shining big sea waters, lay the wigwam of Nakoma, daughter of the moon Nakoma. In ninth grade, I had to memorize the prologue of Canterbury Tales in Middle English. One that April with his shure soter the draught of March hath pierced into the rota and bothered every vein in swish liqueur of which virtue engendered is the fleur. And then there's something about a lamb or something and... Yeah, that's about it. A class assignment when I was in fifth grade was to memorize this poem. It was called, I think, uh, The Road to El Dorado. Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and shadow, had journeyed long, singing a song in search of El Dorado. But he grew old this night so bold, and o'er his heart a shadow fell as he found no spot of ground that looked like El Dorado. As his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon. Objects like old letters and t-shirts have an uncanny ability to trigger our memories. Commentator Sarah Neal tells us how certain objects, either kept or left behind, help us stay connected to the past. In 1987, I found James Patrick Warner, 1942, written under my bedroom wallpaper. I was 14 at the time, and I was fascinated. Who was this guy? And what made him sign and date a bedroom wall? Fifteen years later, I think I understand. My husband, Paul, is a carpenter. He specializes in remodels, and over the past three years, he has found about 50 objects and scribblings in walls and crawl spaces, mostly bottles, newspapers, and building materials. But he also finds measurements and diagrams under wallpaper, and once he found Itchy was here, scrawled on the inside of some sheetrock in a San Francisco flat. His most unusual find was a love note. It had no date on it. He doesn't remember what it said, and he threw it away because it was a piece of trash. My perspective is not so purely practical. I think these objects and scribblings were hidden away for a reason. For me, odd and random objects have an intrinsic use. My collection is as follows. A green glass cold cream jar, a paper drink umbrella, a half-chewed walnut shell, a key, various pieces of stuffed animals, a rock, two silver quarters, a buffalo nickel, a pin from the international violin competition in Indianapolis, a class ring, a button, a guitar pick, a dried rose, and dusty bits that used to be a monarch butterfly. I can sit by myself, open this jar, and reinvent the immediacy of each event, person, or time in life. In each case, what I hold on to about something gives me a reflection of who I was at that time and what I was going through in the past. Leaving something behind, on the other hand, hiding objects or scribblings like Itchy was here inside a wall, I think this can be used to keep track of a slightly heavier piece of information. Flashback to James Patrick Warner, 1942. 
I admit, I have no way of knowing he didn't simply sign what he considered a pretty good wallpaper job. But this is my theory. It's 1942. James Patrick Warner is hanging wallpaper. Pausing to consider that the wall he is working on may outlive him. He glimpses the magnitude of the history that has come before and imagines the length of the history that will succeed his death. Looking backward and forward in time, he sees no evidence of his existence and decides to write something for himself on the wall. A little something in the course of his day to prove to himself that he was really there, a little bookmark. I signed my name below his and covered it back up. To this day, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you in English how many days there are in each month, but I can tell you in German. 30 Tage hat November, April, Juni und September. Februar hat vier mal sieben. Alle, die nach übrig blieben, haben 31. I'm about to count to seven in Nama, which is a language of Namibia, which is a country in southern Africa. Um, I can also count to ten in Swahili. In sixth grade, my best friend was taking French, and I wanted to learn some French. So she taught me the lesson one French dialogue from her sixth grade textbook. And it goes like this. Allo, 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 ici Georges, qui est là? C'est moi, Jean. Ah, bien chez moi, Jean. Tout de suite, oui, tout de suite. Quelle apporte des disques? Quel disque? Oh, des disques des Rolling Stones. Bon, j'arrive. A bientôt, à tout à l'heure. This is the Greek alphabet as memorized when I was very, very small. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lam, mu, nu, xi, omega, phi, rho, sigma, ta, upsilon, phi, chi, psi, omega. We've all done things we'd rather forget, or at least keep hidden from public scrutiny. But as B-Sides Dave Gilson found out, when part of your past is captured on tape, there's no escaping it. Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids formed in December 1988 in my family's den. We only performed together twice, but every song we ever played was recorded on tape. Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids. <laughs> Act, Act one, one, scene one, one take four. four. Greg Kitagawa and Stu McLaughlin were my best friends in high school. We were juniors when we renamed ourselves Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids. Rejectoids says a lot about our social life at the time. Fortunately, things have changed. Today we're all nearly 30 years old, and we have pretty much everything a bunch of 16- and 17-year-old boys could ever want. Girlfriends, cars, and legal IDs. I've held onto my copy of our band's tape as a reminder of what we used to be like, but I hadn't felt the need to listen to it in years. Mostly because Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids really, no, really sucked. That was Stu on guitar, Greg on piano, and me on accordion. Yes, the accordion. What the heck were we thinking? I contacted my former bandmates to find out. It has been a long time since I thought about uh, said band. Probably years. That's Stu, a.k.a. Adonis Stu. These days, he's got an MBA, and he lives in San Francisco. He'd forgotten a lot about the band. I, I bet in my memory it sounds better than it 
It does. When I replayed the tape for him, it all started coming back. The song he remembered most was our one original composition, a heavy metal number called Hellbent and Hot for Leather. The lyrics are just a little too raunchy to play on this family program. Who wrote Hellbent and Hot for Leather? I think you wrote the music and maybe Greg and I wrote the lyrics. <laughs> okay. Good, good, good. <laughs> Listening to the tape with Stu was simultaneously fun and excruciating. It's one thing to remember you were a bad musician. It's another to be painfully reminded of it. For me, that moment came in the middle of a version of John Lennon's Imagine, in which I was singing some improvised lyrics about stew and barnyard animals. Imagine a world for Stuart No weekend games with sheep <laughs> Oh my god, that is priceless. I, I do, that, now, we made fun of you about that for years thereafter, didn't we? Yeah, you got a lot of mileage out of that. Oh, that is priceless. What else is on there? I also called up Greg, who's now a doctor in Cleveland and just announced his engagement. He remembered a bit more about the band than Stu had. He'd kept his copy of the tape, and he'd even played it for a friend in college. But then, Greg had less to be ashamed of. If there was a musical brains behind Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids, it was him. You were the only one who really had musical talent. You were you, you could sing and you could play piano. So. Yeah, but if you if you uh, may notice from the tape, I can't actually do both very well simultaneously. I was just trying to make sure that I was plinking out the right notes, though no one else in the band seemed to really care about hitting the right notes. Greg's favorite cut on the tape is our dirge-like version of the Rolling Stones' "You Can't Always Get What You Want," featuring my 12-year-old brother on clarinet. Despite the voice cracks, the crude songwriting, and our uncanny knack for butchering every song we touched, all three of us remember our short stint as wannabe rock stars as one of the highlights of our friendship. I mean, I just remember having so much fun down there. And uh, it was amazing that, you know, back then we were, we were able to hang out and really not care about anything and just have a terrific time and totally escape in music when we were all such horrible musicians. What also makes the tapes remarkable is how unselfconscious and innocent we seem on them. You know, plenty of high school kids, you know, were doing things probably a lot more self-destructive or potentially dangerous. <laughs> they, they, at least, they were smart enough not to record it for posterity's sake. I don't think any of us really regret recording our musical exploits for posterity. Though we didn't realize it back then, we were leaving ourselves a time capsule that would one day show us that embarrassment and nostalgia can go hand in hand. So I'm sure Greg and Stu will be happy to know that after this, the tape is going back in its case where it belongs. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson. a rap song by Curtis Blow called Basketball, and um, I just know it by heart. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way they dribble up and down the court, 
Just like I'm the king on the microphone, so is Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and take it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley-oop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go, because it's basketball, but Mr. Curtis Blow. These are the lyrics to Ice Ice Baby, which I must have learned when I was in the sixth grade. And it goes something like this. Stop, collaborate, and listen. Ice is back with a brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights, and I'll glow. To the extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance. Dance. Caress the speaker that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly. When I play a dope melody, anything less than the best is a felony. Love it or leave it. You better gain weight. You better hit bulls out of kid. Don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. You've been listening to B-Side. Our crew this month is Mia Lobel, Sarah Neal, Dave Gilson, Amy Scott, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by David Kaufman. You can listen to old shows and meet the crew on our website, bside-radio.org. B-Side will be back on June 12th. In the meantime, tune in to On the Record when it returns in two weeks. I'm Lissa Mudd. Thanks for listening. With a souped up tempo, I'm on a roll. It's time to go solo. Rolling. Hit my 5.0. Put my rag top down so my hair can blow. The girl is on standby, waiting just to say hi. Did you stop? No, I just drove by, kept on. Pursuing to the next stop. I bust a left and I'm heading to the next block. The block was dead, yo. So I continue to A1A. Girls were hot, wearing less than bikinis. Rock men love us, driving Lamborghinis. Jealous. Cause I'm out getting mine. Shade with the gauge and vanilla with the nine. Ready. For the chumps on the wall, the chumps acting ill because they're full of eight ball. Gunshots ranged out like a bell. I grabbed my nine, all I heard was shells falling on the concrete real fast. Jumped in my car, slammed on the gas. Bumper to bumper, the avenue's packed. I'm trying to get away before the jack is jacked. Police on the scene, you know what I mean? They passed me up, could run it all the dope means. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Ice, ice, ice.